podcast. Today on the podcast, we have Brent Beshore. He runs an outfit called Permanent Equity, which is in Columbia, Missouri. Now, it's a private equity firm that doesn't function like traditional private equity. And if you don't know what private equity is, it's basically they buy businesses, they operate them, and then they grow them and then either sell them or hold them. And so Permanent Equity actually holds companies over the long term. And so that's a nuance that in how they work and how they operate their equity firm. So Brent talks about that, and it's very interesting. And then he also talks quite a bit about his journey from being an atheist to being a believer and from his 20s, you know, being all invested and all basically worshiping success and worshiping, um, you know, accolades from the world. And then that all getting flipped on its head, you know, later in his 20s. And so that's the second half of the episode. So very good conversation with Brent. I would jump to the halfway point if you're not really interested in private equity, but it's a very interesting conversation. So let's jump into the conversation with Brent. Every single time. Yeah. Literally, I shouldn't say this, I, until recently, there was not a deal I'd done where I had not gotten down in the middle of the night and on my knees and asked God to rescue me from that deal. Every single deal. Every single one of them. Wow. Well, that's the intro. Yeah. I think we just go with that with the intro. We, since we already started recording. So today on the podcast, <laughs> we have Brent Bishore. So he runs an outfit called Permanent Equity. You guys are in Missouri. You were just pointing to the map that's behind you for those that are listening and not watching it. So Columbia, Missouri, correct? That's correct. Yeah. So Brent, you run this outfit that does private equity, but it's called Permanent Equity. Tell us what that is. What do you do? To somewhat, explain it to us as if we're you know 12 years old. Yeah. Well, if you're 12, I'd say for the most part, we buy old businesses from old guys is how I kind of describe it. Uh, we partner with family-owned businesses and we buy a majority stake in the business, partner with the leadership team and uh, kind of the opposite of traditional private equity. So private equity, all private equity means is you buy equity in private companies, right? So okay. technically anybody who buys equity in private companies is private equity. Now the term private equity means something very specific though. And it's got a bad reputation for a reason, right? It's got plenty of baggage with dirty laundry stuffed in, in that bag. And it usually comes from time horizon and it comes from the use of debt. And the combination of the time horizon and use of debt causes private equity to treat people not very well traditionally. So mm -hmm. the goal of private equity is to find a business, you make an offer to buy it for a price, and then you try to use as much debt as you possibly can to minimize the amount of equity, the amount of sort of cash that the equity, the firm has to put in. And you're going to try to resell that business within a three to five year time horizon. So you think about it from the time you start working with that company until the time you have to sell it is, you know, hopefully on the, from traditional private equity on the lower end of that. So three years doesn't give you much time, right? If you want to think about yeah. the traditional board structure, it's four board meetings a year. That's 12 times you'll get together with the company over the entire life. You'll own the company. Like it's a pretty hot, heavy, lot of change. And you, when you couple that with a lot of debt being put on a business, which I've never seen a long standing healthy, successful family-owned company have much debt on it. I've never mm. seen it. Yeah. And private equity is the norm, right? And so there's a lot yeah. of financial engineering. So because of that, you're not going to own the business very long. There's a lot of debt. You got to make a lot of changes to hopefully sell it to somebody else. You don't treat people very well. You treat people as a means to the end and yeah. not as the end in itself. And so for us, we've tried to organize our structure the exact opposite. So we typically use no debt in our acquisitions, zero. Wow. We are holding indefinitely. We raise the longest 
dated fund and private equity history. So we have a 30 year initial term on our capital. So we don't have to do anything for 30 years. It's incredible, wow. right? Yeah. So we can buy and be serious about it. We buy with no intention of selling the business and it's not even on our radar. And we get offers all the time to sell and we've never sold a business. We own 14 businesses now and we've never sold one. So when you take into account that, it allows us and it gives us all the incentives to treat people a heck of a lot better. So we want to be partners. We want to be kind and generous and long-term. We want them to have great, vibrant, flourishing family lives, personal lives. We want them to have interests outside of work. We want it to be long-term sustainable and a long-term win-win for everyone. Because if it's not win-win, it's not long-term, right? Yeah. Everyone's got to win or it won't keep going on. So that's our approach. It's very different. It's very unusual. And to be honest, most people don't care. You know, most sellers say, Hey, money's not the most important thing unless you're not our highest offer. Right. Yeah. All they care about is the biggest check at close. And look, yeah. for most people, they spent their entire life working on it. That's totally fine. Not to be judgmental. We just try to figure out what people truly care, what happens to their business. And we try to partner with those people. Yeah. That leads me to the first question. I think like what people that are selling to private equity or selling to you, kind of what is the driver? Is it just a maximum cash out or is it, it sounds like in your case, more of like, Hey, we want this business to live on and there to be a legacy, but maybe there's a reason if it's a family business, maybe the partners want to go a different way or the family wants to go a different way. Can you talk about some of the, just the drivers that lead someone to find you and want to sell to you guys? Yeah. Well, it's actually really interesting. Sometimes sellers will say, Hey, so you're promising never to sell my business. We say, no, 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 that's not the case. We might under certain circumstances. And they say, well, if you're not pledging to not sell my business, then why wouldn't I just go with traditional private equity? And I say, well, don't you think there's maybe some good reasons to sell and bad reasons to sell? You know, and they'll say, well, maybe. And I say, well, you're selling. So do you think you're doing something wrong? Right? Of course not. <laughs> right? They're yeah. selling because they have a great reason for it. Right? What they're assuming yeah. is that the next person who buys it won't have a good reason. What we would say is the good reasons to sell are there's been some major life change, right? Death, divorce, health issues. Sometimes people burn out, risk profiles change. Owning, owning and operating a small business is hard work and it's risky. And you've got pretty much your entire family's net worth on the line every day. Yeah. So if you've been in business long enough, you know that a lot of stuff can happen and a lot more things can happen than will happen. And yeah. I think, you know, the primary motivating factor, depending on what the situation is, we kind of do two different styles of deals. One is what I would call like a long-term partnership with the primary seller in which they're staying on board. They're continuing to own a, a big chunk of the business and we're de-risking it for them and helping add resources that would be unusual for a small business to have. So we have a lot of expertise inside the firm, outside the firm that we have access to. We're able to bring um, resources that are helpful and timely and especially in the, in sort of the, the most difficult situations. Right. Yeah. So that's a great reason to partner. I mean, I would say kind of half the deals we do are in that style. The other half are, Hey, look, I'm, you know, 74 years old. I'm exhausted. I want to play with my grandkids. Um, I'm ready to move somewhere warmer. Uh, will you help steward this business into the future? And that looks like a, a lot larger equity purchase. And they may roll forward a little bit in the transaction, but probably mm -hmm. not a ton. And the goal is instead of sort of an indefinite partnership, it's more of like a, hey, this is a two to five year time horizon before you know I'm fully out of the business. Yeah. 
Yeah. You talked about like having the tools to grow the business, you know, running a family business, you know, that's kind of in the three to $5 million range in revenue. It's like, we've been talking to a firm that is going to help us like kind of get past that because they talk about that being a big plateau, right? And you kind of can't break out of it for certain reasons, fundamental reasons. And it seems like the path you can go is hire that a bunch of that talent, which is really risky. Like if you're not considering like a private equity, like a firm like yourself. So can you kind of speak to that? Cause I think you, that's probably right in the wheelhouse of what you guys deal with, which is you're helping them unlock that growth for one reason or another. That's yeah. not, it's not getting unlocked. Yeah. So we call it the ceiling of brute force where no matter what you do, no matter how hard you work, you just kind of keep hitting the ceiling and it doesn't feel like you're ever going to be able to get through it. And, you know, our vantage point is fairly unusual, right? So we've got a number of, quite a few companies we own ourselves. We see lots and lots of companies, the inside of lots of companies, even the ones we don't purchase, you know, we get to understand them and know them and, you know, how are they being successful? So we see kind of the way we think about it as lids across the company in sort of all the key areas. So you might call it like advertising, marketing, sales, technology, you know, accounting, finance, HR, recruiting, right? There's all these different areas that, you know, we joke, it's everything tastes like chicken layer of business, right? So no matter what business (laughs) you're in, it all tastes the same, right? No matter, you know, in in our businesses, we own a pool construction company, we own a matchmaking firm, um, you know, we own a fencing company. It's, It's all the same stuff, manufacturing, construction, business services, you know, the core itself, the actual expertise needed is very bespoke. And we were hopefully partnering with companies that would be successful without us who are doing a great job, but they're just probably not great at every area of the business of business. And so we're able to come in and say, well, you know, Hey, have you thought about doing more marketing? They say, yeah, marketing doesn't work. We've tried it. You know, we've hired five different firms. Well, the reality is if you're a small business, what firm, you know, marketing firm that really knows what they're doing, that are really excellent is going to work with you. None. None. Yeah. They just don't exist. So the yeah. only companies, there's this weird selection bias in small business that, you know, no one wants to talk about this, just a reality, which is the only people who consistently stay in small business and work with small business as outside providers are the people who either are very, very young and haven't been able to yet step up or the people who couldn't step up. So you have this really negative selection bias that the service providers aren't actually very good at the thing itself that they do. Yeah. So that's a lot of the lids. That's depressing. So you go to and say, <laughs> Well, this is why you don't see larger companies, right? So what are the ways in which you can break through? You got to figure out a way to get the talent and inside talent or outside talent, right? Hire somebody as a consultant or hire somebody internally that can actually take to the next level, or you have to learn it yourself. And that's what a lot Mm -hmm. of small business owners do is they become experts at through trial and error and a lot of hitting their face on the pavement, become experts at things they never intended to become experts at, right? They never would have dreamed. That's what allows them to get through those ceilings of brute force, but oftentimes they can't. And that's why businesses yeah. stay small, right? We, we say small businesses don't stay small on purpose. There's a reason why they're small. And so what we're trying to yeah. do is we're trying to, through the diligence process and through working with them, really get to know the business inside and out and understand what we think are those lids and then come with solutions and say, Hey, we think it would release that lid on the, on the business over here. If we did X, Y, Z, what do you think? Right. And we try yeah. to be very collaborative. We're not coming in and telling them what to do. So is that kind of the thesis of why private equity exists is that there's all these lids that are there and they can't unlock those lids. I mean, apart from kind of how you view it or what your exit you know, timeline is, is that the macro thesis of like, there's all this growth that's trapped there for, for all these various reasons. So if someone can come in that has the expertise and the funding to unlock that, 
but it's a matter of, hey, we're, we're going to have them change their diet and go to the gym as opposed to just getting steroids and liposuction, you know, in traditional private equity. I don't, I don't know what the analogy I, I is. Like, honestly, I like that. I may rip that one off. That's pretty good. Okay, you can have it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, exactly. I'll give you credit. So yeah, I would say traditionally that's not the case. So traditionally private equity existed because there was an arbitrage through financial engineering. So mm. the idea is if you have a private equity firm and you're going to have a fund where you're going to, you're going to put 10 companies in a fund and you're going to hive off the risk profile of all 10 of those companies. So if one detonates, it just is contained to that one company and you're going to put max leverage on all of them. And let's say that that, you know, one out of the 10 blows up, goes to zero. You lose all your money in that one, but easily is made up for the leverage that you put on the others that the equity is going to look a lot better because the other nine went well or the other eight went well or whatever it is. So that's kind of, it's really like a hiving off of, it's a portfolio construction hiving off of risk and financial mm-hmm. engineering that allows that the winners rise up and the, and the losers are contained. Now I would say is that I don't think, I mean, it still can work. I don't think that that anymore is the primary strategy. You have to be able to do something with the assets. Now, Unfortunately, I think there's also a strategy that private equity has taken, which is, and look, I can relate to this. It's not, it's not, not true that mm-hmm. most owners of companies after a long time get lazy. They get happy with where they are. They get complacent and institutions tend to bloat naturally, right? Yeah. So if you just don't do anything, there's this just like natural growth of, Hey, this person needs another person in their department. Why do we need the person in the department? Like, well, that person said we did. Do they need him? Do they not need him? That person comes in. It's not clear exactly what they're doing or how they're adding value. It's, you know, very few companies are run on, you know, high performance metrics, right? Where you can get. Yeah. So I think traditionally private equities come in and said, I mean, it's kind of like what Elon's doing with Twitter, right? Where they have 10,000 engineers. Now they're like, gosh, I don't know, 2,500 engineers. Yeah. And Twitter still works, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I think traditionally that's what. That's what private equity's done. Now, again, I'm not sure that really is a primary methodology for value creation too much. I mean, yeah. there's always going to be some low hanging fruit, probably, if it's been owned long enough and operated long enough. But I would say value creation now is the primary strategy. So, you know, our core thesis is look, we want to be involved with businesses that would be successful without us and we want to try to make them better. And if we can do that over a long enough period of time, then I think it'll work, right? And I think where people get into trouble is when they have a short time horizon and make bad decisions for the long term to make sure that the short term looks good. Because you can pull forward. I mean, you know, in your business, you could probably make this year look fantastic. If all you were judged on is this one year, you could make your P&L look pretty darn good. Now, you'd sacrifice a lot in the future and it would be harmful to the business long term. But you could make it look good this year. That's what a lot of private equity firms, unfortunately, do. Yeah. So how did you get into this? Did you have traditional background in private equity or like, tell me about a little bit of the story to permanent equity. Yeah. I joke <laughs> that I'm the Forrest Gump of private equity for a reason. I've never taken a finance <laughs> class in my life. I've never worked at another firm. When I say literally can barely open up Excel, it's true. Like if anybody in my office wants to make sure I don't read something, they tend it to me in Excel. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I fell backwards into it. I was an entrepreneur and had a mutual acquaintance say, Hey, this guy just got left at the altar for the second time. You should you should check him out. You should talk to him. I was 25. I thought that meant I should try to go buy his business. He had no intention that that's what I was doing. In fact, I sat down with the gentleman he introduced me to and, and literally the first words out of his mouth were, why am I sitting here? And I said, well, sir, I, you know, I'd like to try to buy your business. He's like, two grown men have tried to buy my business. Like, what, <laughs> what are you doing? 
And, you know, I'm almost 40 and I, I don't, and people tell me I don't look 40 now. And I looked about 14 then probably be my guess. And, uh, you know, in hindsight, it felt, felt kind of crappy at the time, but in hindsight, it was, it was dead on. And uh, anyway, took out an SBA loan, asked my newly married wife to sign a personal guarantee. She's like, what's that? And I was like, ah, oh, don't worry about it. It's fine. Just sign it. <laughs> we bought the business and it ended up going quite well. So that ended up producing some cash flow, paid down the SBA loan, paid it off early, way early. And then, thought to myself, I wonder if there are more people out there like him. And I contacted a buddy of mine who was in London, great friend from college. And I said, Hey, I just did this deal. And he's like, Oh, you did a private equity deal. And I literally Googled private equity. That's like, great. I didn't even know there was anything called private equity at that time. I literally Googled private equity and I started researching and I was like, I'll be, there's a whole industry of people who do this for a living. Who knew? <laughs> and that was the start of it. I owe most of my career to Google. Yeah. Do you, do you think that was a competitive advantage of yours? You know, you didn't go down the, you say, Hey, I want to get into PE and then follow kind of the game, the game plans or the playbooks that are out there. Yeah. I think it was an advantage and a disadvantage. It was certainly an advantage. I mean, we have a very unusual structure, you know, our long time horizon, our fee structure is unique. We have a very different fee structure than everyone else. And all those are just first principles thinking, right? Like what if you didn't come from any background? What if you just came into it fresh? Like that's how we came to those conclusions. It also is a hindrance in the sense that like we battled on so many fronts for so long. And then somebody would come along and be like, Oh, well, this is just how everyone else does it. Why don't you do it that way? And we're like, Oh, that would have been helpful to know two years ago. Like, great. <laughs> there are best practices. So anyway, you know, I would say anymore, we try to be different in areas that we feel very passionate about and try to not be different in areas that people have figured things out. Yeah. <laughs> try to have high humility and learn from the best of what others have done. So how do you, how do you staff like your organization then? Like you don't go find people that worked in private equity, right? I mean, you kind of have to grow them internally or tell me about that a little bit. Yeah. It's something I'm proud about. Everyone who works here has been an operator. So we don't hire anybody who, and when I say anybody, I mean, literally the person who's managing our real estate and our chief of staff, like used to manage a hundred plus people in a big real estate firm, like all of our financial staff had been involved in businesses, right? So until you've operated a business and Mike, obviously, you know, this cause you're an operator, but you mm -hmm. know, you have a lot of friends, family members who've never operated. They just don't get it. They don't understand yeah. what's important. What's not important. You know, if you've never been there, things you think are important, aren't important and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And so our view is, look, we're not hiring people out of traditional private equity. I mean, maybe someday we will, but for the most part, like it's so ingrained this alternative universe that makes sense in the context of the industry, but in first principles, doesn't make sense Yeah, that I don't want to bring that into the organization. What we want is people who have original thoughts, think from first principles and who have been operators. So they have a feel and have empathy for the people that we work with. You know, we're advising, we're partnering with entrepreneurs and with operators. We certainly don't want to tell them things that we have no idea what we're talking about. And I feel like that's yeah. traditionally, you know, it's this sort of the old adage of the private equity firm flies in from the coast and says, well, why aren't you guys doing all these things? And then they're like, oh yeah, we'll think about it. And then, you know, go off and are like, oh my gosh, those people have no idea what they're talking about. Right. Cause they don't, if you've never been an operator, you just cannot understand what it's like to be an operator and you can't face the challenges. All operators, no traditional private equity, really no one from traditional finance either. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I can see how that would be an advantage because it's totally just a perspective thing. I mean, they have a perspective and a real, um, 
reality based <laughs> insights on what they're doing. Yeah. So, so I have a question, kind of bring it around to fatherhood a little bit. As you're a father, that's why you're on this podcast. Having done a lot of deals inside of family businesses and seen the insides and kind of the nuances of maybe operators and how the business has taken a toll and maybe taken their life in certain ways. I'm curious how you think about permanent equity and your kids and do you want them in the family business and how do you think about it? Like kind of post Brent, like what does that look like? Yeah, that's a great question. To be honest, I don't know. I'm, you know, in terms of what I want for my girls, like I want them to know the Lord and I want them to um, live great lives, which are not easy lives. And I think that mm -hmm. there's a danger of, you know, of course, you know, spoiling kids and, um, you know, my worst fear is that they are, you know, somehow like trust fund kids. Right. And so I don't, I don't want that for them. I also don't want them. There's some unnecessary hardship. Like, you know, I think my wife and I, that we've talked about in terms of, um, resources to them, you know, it's enough to do something, but not enough to do nothing. It's mm. kind of now, what, what does that mean? What's the Goldilocks of that? We're trying to figure that out. I mean, we've got an idea in our head. We've got a plan right now, but trying to figure that out. beyond that, look, like I would love if they would want to work in the portfolio. I'd love if they wanted to get a job here, but they got to get a job that's commiserate with their skill set, with their education and with their passions. Yeah. And so if one of them wants to go grind in a small business and become the leader of that and, you know, run the business well and they're performing great and they want to step up and do portfolio management here and eventually someday have a shot at running it. Fantastic. But just because they're, I have three daughters, just because they're a, you know, daughter of mine doesn't mean they get to come in and, you know, be a vice president right out of college. We're not right. going to play that game. Yeah. I, I would assume as much, you know, just from what I know about you and what I've read about you, <laughs> you wouldn't, you wouldn't just usher them in like that. <laughs> but yeah, I just, well, I think it would be harmful for them. I mean, it would yeah. hurt them. I mean, I don't know anybody. I know quite a few, uh, children that, that were raised with a lot of resources and inherited a lot of resources. And I don't know any of them. I'm going to hold on. I'm going to gut check this. I, maybe one of them that is what I would say, well-adjusted. And yeah. I know a bunch of them who are miserable and, you know, I, I call it the zookeeper theory. So if you think about it, if you're a lion at the zoo and you're fed steaks every day, and then you're released out into the wild, are you gonna be able to hunt? No, because you were just fed steaks every day. Like, you know, you, you end up harming and it goes directly against the instincts. I mean, look, God made work. It's pre-fall. Like it's a good thing. Mm. Work is a gift. Like we get to co-create. We get to image God in how we design and create. And so to take that away from somebody and to like have them almost like, I mean, being a vice president right out of college as an example would be like, it's like a meta job. It's not really a job, right? It's not like mm. you're really producing or really creating. You're kind of in this weird, like managerial position high up. You're paid too much for your skill set. Like it just, everything feels off. Like I don't want to harm my kids. I love them. I love them so yeah. dearly. And so the best thing I think I can do for them is offer them opportunities and try to be helpful. I want to be for them. Like I'm not going to treat them as strangers, but I certainly don't want to harm them through paving the road to where they think they're going fast because they're amazing. And because they've learned so much and they get over their skis and realize, Oh no, there's a paved road. And, and you know, my dad bought me a Ferrari. I mean, that's like the worst possible thing you can do. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, a, I'm curious, like how, 
how you've seen, I mean, part of the question was like asking too about like how you've seen that play out with family businesses you've been involved in either deals that you've done with permanent equity or just like people in your network, because it's obviously a balance. I mean, there's one thing to say, okay, you know, you have means and you want to kind of raise your kid in an appropriate way and not spoil them. But then there's just like the very just basic parenting where you can take it to one extreme or the other, whether it's like lazy parenting, which is kind of abandonment. And then there's lazy parenting, which is like overbearing. Right. So there's kind of, you know, cosms or you have gradients, you know, with those, but I'm kind of curious, you know, maybe just speak to some of the deals like you guys have done and kind of how you've seen maybe bad outcomes, particularly in families in businesses. Yeah. Unfortunately, I'd say bad outcomes are the norm. You know, I think that money is often not talked about and power dynamics are often not talked about. And look, people have good intentions. People are trying to do the best they can. I mean, look, have some empathy. I don't think anybody sets out to harm their child. They think they're actually helping their child. They just don't understand the consequences of what they're doing. And so, yeah, I mean, look, we've seen tragic situations where families are ripped apart. You know, thankfully for the most part, we've sidestepped a lot of that ourselves, but Anytime, I mean, we've walked into plenty of situations and gotten to know the families that are, that are involved and said, Whoa, there's a lot there. There's a lot of baggage. You know, there's always a lot of baggage for any family, but when you bring that baggage to work and then you unload that baggage in front of a lot of other people, it, it gets messy quickly. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my advice to families is uh, instead of doing the expedient thing in the moment, and maybe this is beyond business, but just instead of doing the expedient thing in the moment, do the thing that's ultimately going to help the person the best, help your child the best. Yeah. And oftentimes it looks like truth mixed with a lot of grace, right? I mean, if you came to me, Mike, and you said, oh man, Brent, I am, um, I am a heroin addict and I just love heroin and I don't have much heroin right now. Can you help get me some heroin? Because it makes me feel great. <laughs> with the loving and kind thing to do to be like, absolutely, Mike, let me get you some heroin. No, of course not. It would be, Hey, Mike, I don't think that's going to be good for you. I think you're hurting your life. I think you're destroying your family. Like, can I come help you not need heroin? Can I help you get into something else that's going to be way healthier for you? Now, is that loving and kind? Is that going to be a hard conversation with you? Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like the analogy is is pretty similar. There's a lot of people who treat their kids, as you said, with an odd mixture of indulgence and indifference. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's tragic. And I think the kids can see that, right? And it destroys families. And I think it destroys the businesses they're a part of. Yeah. An odd mix of indulgence. And yeah, I like that phrase that you said. And I think it's, it's important to be empathetic to people because no one starts off with wanting to you know, <laughs> ruin their kids. You of know, course they, not. They, there's a, there's a series of decisions that are made or compromises that are made along that way. So. Of course, everyone's trying to do the best they can. It's just unfortunate that, you know, we're all, we're all broken, fallen sinful people. Right. And I mean, at the end of the day, like there's no way to get around it. No amount of education doesn't make your heart want things that it shouldn't want that are unhealthy long-term. Right. I mean, it's not an education problem. It's not a willpower issue. It's not a motivation and drive issue. I mean, those can all be issues, but at the end of the day, I mean, look, we're this side of East of Eden, like it's going to be messy and Mm -hmm. we're all messy. 
man, I think yeah. I'm just, you know, the, the, I think the best lives that I've seen lived, I love to sit at the feet of elders and ask them hard questions and soak up, you know, they're really, really hard earned knowledge and wisdom. And, you know, oftentimes I'll ask, you know, if you could go back 30, 40 years and have a conversation with yourself, let's say you got three hours with yourself from 30, 40 years ago, like, what would you tell yourself? And, and often it is very similar advice. It is, man, get out of your own way. Stop being so prideful, like be humble. You don't know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Listen, learn, speak less, listen more and have a lot more empathy for what everyone else is going through. Be less concerned about what other people think, <laughs> be more committed and serious about the important things and less committed and less serious about everything else. Yeah. Do you work some of that into the businesses that you guys, you know, acquire, you know, in terms of like coaching with the leaders, the CEOs, you know, those type of roles? Yeah. I mean, I would say our operating partners and our financial partners, I mean, at the end of the day, they're in coaching roles, right? So they're on the sidelines at coaching. I mean, occasionally they'll hop in the game for short periods of time, depending on sort of the way we think about it as a two by two matrix of the higher, the importance, the more, the impact of the thing and the less, the frequency, the more that we should be involved. So low frequency, high impact, permanent equity is going to be all over it, mm -hmm. trying to be helpful. High impact, high frequency means it should be a core part of the business, mm -hmm. right? Low frequency, low impact means, well, let's not worry about it. Just yeah. move along, right? And high frequency, low impact means it's probably just a kind of a rote thing that, you know, should be part of the business and we really should be focused on. Yeah. So high impact, low frequency. I mean, we are absolutely involved. If, you know, if you're going to change out an ERP system or hire a new, you know, VP of marketing, those are things that hopefully you're not doing very often. And I don't think the companies, you know, no company's better because they're excellent at, at, at implementing an ERP system, unless that's obviously the business that they're in. Yeah. But I'm saying for themselves, like, you know, it's not like afterwards you implement an ERP system and you're like, wow, we've got all this knowledge about how to implement an ERP system. Now it's going to change everything. It's like, no, we just implemented it. Now let's never think about it again, hopefully. Right. Yeah. So those are the, you know, the, the low frequency, high impact things that we're going to get involved in. But we're coaching every day and we're trying to be resources. So yeah, I mean, a lot of these principles, you know, we try to be very consistent with how we treat our organizations. You know, we're coming to them with a long history of culture that they've built up over a long period of time. And so we're not trying to say, Hey, everyone needs to fit our mold. You need to treat people like this. You need to do this. There are a lot of differences and nuances in our portfolio, but we're definitely trying to move them along a spectrum to be kinder, gentler, more thoughtful, more winsome, longer term oriented, all these things that are sort of core principles that we, that we believe in. Yeah. Where do you see things going in terms of just the market? And, you know, it seems like there's a generation of boomers that are retiring. So some of those have successors, some don't, especially in the family business world, they tend to not, or it tends to be messy. Do you see the frequency of your deals increasing or, you know, is there going to be more of a flood of businesses that are going to be wanting to sell or what trends do you see at the deal level you guys are doing? Yeah. I mean, I would say, yeah, there's a big universe of companies that need to transition out there and, you know, down market from where we are, very few businesses actually should be sold. There's a lot of what we call owner moat. So all of the expertise relationships are built up into the owner and the owner carries those things with them. It's a lot of personal goodwill. 
And a lot of those businesses, frankly, are just are untransitionable without an apprentice model. So the only way to transition those businesses is you bring in somebody, have them work with you for three to five years, and eventually they buy you out. Now, a lot of people don't have the resources to do that or the patience to do that. They get sick. There's a death in the family. There's a divorce, you know, all the things that would precipitate a major life change. And most of those businesses get shut down, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe they get haphazardly transitioned and then shut down, or sometimes it happens immediately. Now I would say is in our area of the market, you know, what I would say kind of like three plus million, really more like even five plus million dollars of earnings, right? Mm-hmm. So not revenue, but the bottom line cash flow. You know, the companies that are at that level typically have more structure, typically have a little more momentum to them and a little bit more diversity of expertise. Not always the case. We've seen, we call them sort of the difference between a business and a hustle. We've seen some big hustles, right? I mean, we saw one a couple of years ago, it was $15 million of free cash flow, total hustle. The owner was incredible, spectacular. I mean, unbelievable firepower as a human and was irreplaceable. There's no possible way anybody could replace him. And that's why he was making 15 million bucks a year as a single proprietor with basically nothing but bailing wire and duct tape around him. All right. So, you know, what I would say is those businesses that we're looking at are, there's a lot of them out there. Yes. There's a lot of people. If you look at demographics, everyone's getting older, but everyone's working longer too. Like health outcomes for, especially, I mean, let's be honest, like if, if, if you're the owner of a business making between call it three and $15 million a year, you're wealthy. Mm-hmm. And so for wealthy people, health outcomes have really exploded upwards, right? I mean, yeah. people are staying much healthier for much longer and able to work for a lot longer. So you're kind of fighting two things. You're fighting demographics on one end, and then you're fighting kind of increased health outcomes. And really what you think about is it's just shifted the curve by about 10 years. So, you know, people are consistently now working into their seventies and maybe even early eighties, whereas before it was kind of like late fifties to early sixties was kind of like more of a transition time. I mean, I see more late fifties, early sixties. I mean, we meet with those people and we're like, Hey, you're young. Why do you want to sell? Yeah. You know, I mean, whereas a generation ago, you look at the same people and I mean, frankly, they just weren't nearly as good a shape. Yeah. So, um, yes, that's a long answer to a short question, which is yes. There should be a lot more coming in. I mean, obviously for us, we think the market's so big. It's more of just making sure that people know we exist because you don't need us until you need us. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the odds that we're going to find you at exactly the right time are pretty low, but we hopefully make in contact with people and, you know, they may say, Hey, I'm not going to be interested for five or 10 years. Great. Hopefully we're not going anywhere either. So, yeah. So I want to kind of, I guess we got to bring this thing in for landing here a little bit, Brent, but it'd <laughs> be sense of your time, but I wanted to. If someone that's listening to this is maybe more in my category, say they're like a little bit down market from where you guys are at, and maybe they're looking to grow or they're thinking about selling, or I'm just kind of curious, what are some things that you might, some pieces of advice you might give to that operator? You know, I I know that's kind of a, a wide open question and kind of vague, but I'm just kind of curious, what are some of the pieces of advice? Like if they said, hey, you had a three hour conversation with this person, like what are some of the nuggets you'd pass down to them? in assessing whether they should sell, whether they should scale it up or how they should think about the future of their business. Yeah. Well, I actually literally that question provoked us to write a book called the messy marketplace. So that's the easiest way. If you, if you really want the full answer, the easiest way is go on Amazon and buy the messy marketplace. I mean, literally it has our entire due diligence checklist in it. It walks you through from why should you consider selling all the way through to 
how to choose a banker, if you should choose an investment banker and how to think about due diligence and documentation, all that stuff. So th that's a very long answer. And, and by the way, it's a great question. It's a question that we asked ourselves and we kept getting that same question from a lot of sellers, which is why we wrote the book, right? To scale yeah. those conversations. The short answer and the summary of all that entire book is if you were a buyer of your business, what would you be worried about? Hmm. Go solve those problems. So yeah. if you were a buyer of your business and you say, well, I'd be worried about me leaving because I hold a lot of relationships. Great. That's a problem. Go fix yeah. that. Diversify the access to relationships. Well, I'd be concerned because a lot of the expertise about how to run the business is in my head. There's really no one else has it. Great. You got to create systems, document processes. Well, I'd be worried because our accounting systems in shambles. I mean, I barely know. I just know I run the business on cash. I have no idea really if the financials are accurate or not. Great. That's a problem. Got to go fix that. You know, it's really that simple. It's just put yourself in the shoes of a buyer and say, what would make that buyer set up? How could I set that buyer up for the best success and for the least worry? And then create a checklist of those things and go get them done. And when you get those things done, your business will be worth probably double what it would be worth before. Like each one of those activities is incredibly value creative because somebody's got to do the work. Either you're going to do the work now and somebody's going to pay you for it, or they're going to have to do the work and take a lot of risk and they're not going to be able to pay you for it. But either yeah. way, somebody's got to do the work. That's a, that's a good point. I mean, it addresses kind of both markets if you, or both segments, if you want to grow the business or if you want to sell it, it's like, you got to fix your, get your stuff together and either you're going to be in a better spot as a business to be acquired or just to continue to operate. So. I like that you short know, summary. I mean, if you like that, then you should go buy the book, right? It should give you a bigger, a bigger, <laughs> yeah. a bigger I mean, insight, basically, right? it's all the nuance underneath that. But yes, yes, right. that's basically right. It. Right, right. I like that. Well, thanks, Brent. I appreciate it. I really appreciate the time. I know we didn't hit a ton on fatherhood, but I kind of wanted to talk more on the kind of what you guys do as a business. And I hope that's valuable for my audience. And you've dropped in some clues there about fatherhood and kind of how to think about that. So thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, I know that the, the point of this podcast is fatherhood and maybe I can just parting ways, give yeah. you a quick bit of advice. And, you know, I would say I see a lot of men, especially who are obsessed with their work yeah. and who are looking for validation and fulfillment in their work. And it's a lie. Like, I mean, your work, hopefully God gives you work that you enjoy and that you can create and, you know, help build the kingdom. But like, at the end of the day, you're tasked with taking care of your family first and foremost, and it's not being a man. It's not good to make a bunch of money and not have your family know you or think they care. You care about them. Yeah. Like it's just not like you are failing. You are winning at the wrong game and it's a game that you'll get prestige for. It's a game that the world will encourage you to do be more productive, do more, right? They'll always demand more. It's a lie. And so I would just tell your audience, like, Look, I run a private equity firm. I try to be home for my kids. I try to help make them breakfast in the morning. I do travel, but I try to be home as much as I possibly can. And I want my girls, I want my wife to know that they are the number one priority by a country mile in my life with no exceptions. Work is a very distant third or fourth. And that doesn't mean I don't work hard and it doesn't mean I don't care about my work. It's just, we've got to get our priorities right. And my argument would be, if you get your priorities right and you treat your family well, your work's going to reflect that you're going to be actually way better at the office because you care deeply and you don't have turmoil and personal struggle. It's a lot easier to take risks at work when your personal life is boring. And I say boring in all the best ways. <laughs> like when you have a wife, 
or a husband that loves you deeply, that you care for, that you can be unified with, that you're in lockstep with, when you have kids that you care deeply for, that you can have a great relationship with, taking risks at work is easy. Yeah. Right? It's when your personal life's in turmoil, you can't perform at the office. So get your stuff in order. I'd rather see somebody, if you ask me, take somebody who's like, you know, the normal 25, 30 year old who's rearing to go and said, you know, how am I going to have the most success over the next 10 years? I'd tell them to spend five years getting their personal life in order before I'd even worry about business. And at the end of that 10 years, they'll be further along in business than if they'd focused on business all 10 years. That's really interesting. I feel like we have a whole other episode starting here, so we might be in another hour. But <laughs> so I think that's super interesting because that's totally opposite of the narrative. So for, first of all, I want to say that whole spiel you went on is the whole reason I started this podcast was because I felt like there yeah. wasn't enough content around it. So thank you for that. Yeah. But second of all, I would say that's completely counter to the narrative that you hear out there, whether it's in startup culture, hustle culture, whatever. It's like your 20s are for hustling and working your butt off, which I think there's some truth to that, but I think that that is a shallow, you, okay, you get out the end of that and drop out of the end of the shoot of that whole process and that whole religion, if you will, and you're pretty empty, right? I mean, yeah, you might have some money, but what do you do with it? Yeah, well, I guess it depends on what you mean by work hard, right? I mean, like God commands us, and this is something that these, these rhythms have been observed for thousands of years. So take the divinity of Jesus off the table for just a second. Yeah. Just say, hey, look, like who's the greatest leader in the history of the world? Who has the most followers in the history of the world? It's Jesus, right? Yeah. And you look at Jesus and what did he say? He said, work hard, work really, 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 really hard six days a week. So six days a week, bust it, go after it, go, go work hard. And on the seventh day, you rest, right? I don't see people doing that. I actually see a perversion on both sides. And by the way, when I say I see other people, it's, I did this for the longest time. I, mm -hmm. I learned a lot of this the hard way, right? I would work myself to the bone or I would kick into lazy mode and not want to work at all. Both of those are perversions of the truth. So you are called to work hard. Let's just say it. You are mm -hmm. called to work hard. It is not the dream to retire, whatever that means. The dream should never to be retired, especially for a Christian. I literally don't know what it means to retire. That's never said anywhere in the Bible. There's, <laughs> there's no basis for retirement, right? Yeah. Like this idea that sometime you've crossed some sort of finish line and now you just pleasure yourself all day with golf and fishing and reading the news. Like, I don't know what that means, right? Yeah. So there's no retirement. You're called to work hard from the day you're born till the day you die. You're called to work hard, except when you're called to rest hard. Yeah. And resting hard is as important as working hard. It reprioritizes things and it puts trust where it should be, right? Which is this world's a lot more unpredictable than we give it credit for. And we have a lot less control than we would like. And all along the way, we're supposed to pray hard as well. Mm -hmm. So if you just work hard, rest hard and pray hard, a lot of things are going to go really well in your life. Not everything's going to go perfect. This is the prosperity gospel. Like look at the Bible. No one had an easy life. No one's perfect. We're all messy. All that disclaimers, but things have a lot better shot. Like read Proverbs. Things have a lot better shot at going well. If you go with the grain of the universe, how God created the universe. And it's super clear what that is. And so when I see guys who are, you know, quote unquote hustling and working hard, what that typically means is a form of self-obsession. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to fill that God sized hole in their heart with achievement. I know because I've done it. It sucks. It eats you alive. It never fills you up. You always crave more. It doesn't matter how much money you have in your bank account. It doesn't matter how much praise or what awards you win. It doesn't matter what 
great people say you're awesome, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, it all hits that shallow facade. It can't get through because you know that's not really who you are and what you were designed for. What we were designed for is relationship. What we were designed for is to worship. If you're not in relationship, deep, deep, deep relationship with other men, if you're blessed with a romantic relationship with that person, with your children, you need to be in deep, deep, deep relationship, fully known, fully loved, nothing to hide, nothing to lose. Those are the four pillars of it. If you're not there, you are not living life to the fullest. I don't care how many accolades, how much money, how many promotions, any of that stuff. It's all for naught if you don't have that foundation established. And I'm telling you, if you could get that foundation established, it is amazing how your life will transform. Why do people not have that foundation more established? Is it just the pull of the world and the allure or is it failure to have like positive role models that actually have that? They can exhibit that. That can be an example or both or talk to me about what's preventing that. I mean, it's the fall of human nature. I mean, but go back to Exodus, yeah. go back to Genesis. I mean, nothing's new. There's nothing new under the sun. Yeah. Ecclesiastes has it right. I mean, we have been trying, striving to create gods of ourselves from day one. Now, how do you create a God for yourself? I don't know. That's up to you. Some people put all everything into beauty and sex, yeah. right? If I look fantastic, if I go to the gym every day, and if I'm able to have sex with whoever I want to have sex with, life will be great. Narrator. Turns out it was not, yeah. right? Other people will say, hey, if I have enough money, if I have freedom, right? That's why I keep hearing this, a freedom narrative. Yeah. And believe me, wait, 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 I keep hearing it because I lived it for a long time. Like I was a secular atheist in my twenties and it drove me to nihilism. It was awful. I ended my twenties with a ton of money, a beautiful wife who loved me. And I told her, I don't love you. I don't love anybody. And I hated my life. It was awful. And I had achieved everything somebody in their twenties would want to achieve. Mm-hmm. We were Inc. 500. I got an award from the White House. We were the fastest growing company in Missouri history. I was making more than a million dollars a year with no debt living in Columbia, Missouri. I could do anything I want. I could travel anywhere I want. I could buy anything I wanted within reason. I mean, obviously, for a 20-some-year-old living in Columbia, Missouri. But, <laughs> And I'm telling you, like it's the Jim Carrey quote. Like I hope everyone gets their hopes and dreams to realize that's not it. Yeah. Like if you base your existence on trying to build yourself up to be God... It's not going to work. The mortality rate has hovered around a hundred percent for a very long time. <laughs> so true. So true. Oh man. Thanks for bringing that fire, Brian. I appreciate it. That's the truth. I yeah. just want people to know. I mean, yeah, yeah, we can talk about business and we can talk about buying businesses and selling businesses yeah. and making money and all that stuff. And, and look, it's important. I don't want to minimize it. It is definitely a work that I've been called to do. It's something that I feel like I feel like I have the best job in the world but it's a job. Mm-hmm. It's a job. And it's about the people. Like it is all about people. It's all about, I mean, we are, you know, CS Lewis has this amazing quote and I'm going to butcher it a little bit here, but like, if you could see people for who they really were, you'd be tempted to worship them. Right? Like we are just a very muddied opaque versions of what we will someday be. And it is amazing to see what people are capable of. We see it shine through. I mean, yes, we're messy, but it's also beautiful. Like we image God and it's obvious when you look in somebody else's eyes, they're not a moist robot. They didn't just evolve out of pond scum. I mean, come on, look Mm -hmm. at them. 
Like you don't look at your chair or your desk and say, well, given a long enough time, that chair is going to turn into a human being. It just doesn't happen. <laughs> There's something uniquely different about who we are that is different and everyone can see it. Everyone knows it. And the only thing we, you know, smart people overcomplicate things. That's why in the Bible, God continues to say, have childlike faith, be like the child, bring me the children. Mm -hmm. Children back in his day were, were nothing. I mean, they were like, like property, right? Yeah. I mean, they weren't supposed to be around. I mean, you could do anything you want with them sexually. It was horrific. What happened to children back then? It was part of the initiation rights. They thought it was good for them. And Jesus completely turned all that it's on his head because it's all about people, people centric. That's why mm. the church has always been more women than men. It's always been dominated by women. Because he takes the lowest of the low and raises them up, right? It's all about people. So if you're at a point in your life where you think it's about money or you think it's about sex or you think it's about power, or you think it's about fame, look, all those things can be great tools. And, and my goodness, sex and marriage is way better, mm -hmm. unbelievably better than hookups, mm -hmm. way better than tender, mm -hmm. right? Because that's where it's meant to be. When you can have money where you're not greedy and look, we all have struggles with it. I'm not trying to say that I've licked this or, you know, victory declared, right? Yeah. But I'm saying is if you can have money and look at it as a tool to do good for others, it transforms it. It is unbelievable. If you can use authority and relationships and any sort of fame that you have to help pull people up, it changes their life and it changes your life. And yeah. it's better for the giver than the receiver. So I would just say is if you're listening to this and you're in the like sort of rat race of traditional worldly acquisition you know, sort of the selfish gain. Yeah. Just, you got to stop and you got to realize that's not the path that's going to lead to anything you, you want to go on. It's not going to take you anywhere you want to go. Yeah. So just stop and try to reassess. Amen. Well, Mike drop with Brent Bashor. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Hey, uh, Mike, thanks so much for having me on. No, appreciate I, you. I appreciate that. And I'm glad I kind of got around to that because I've heard some of that story and I'm glad you kind of brought up some of that because that is a word that needs to be preached far and wide and often you talk about high frequency high impact that's what that word should be that should be high frequency it should be preached a lot and it's high impact so so thank you i no, appreciate thank it thank you thank you for listening to the two and dad podcast if you enjoyed this podcast please share it with another dad who you think would benefit that's really the best thing you can do to help this show it a gets the word out but b and most importantly it helps another father be better at his role as a father. And that's what this show, that's what this podcast, that's what the website, that's what the blog, everything exists for. So if you could, share it with another dad who would find value in it. And you can always head over to the website, twocentdad.com, the number twocentdad.com. And if you have any feedback, feel free to email me, mike at twocentdad.com. I must also thank the sponsor, EC Group. If you're looking to hire software developers or you need extra development capacity, check out teamwithec.com. Thanks.